If you're like me, you use credit cards for everything to help keep your finances in order and benefit from all those rewards programs. But it turns out that the average person misses out on $300 worth of rewards every year simply because they're not using the right cards. But a new app called Birch helps you get the most out of your cards and earn the rewards you deserve. Just connect your debit and credit cards securely, and Birch will actively track your rewards programs and show you how to use them the right way, even in real time before you buy. It also analyzes your transactions and recommends cards that will earn you more based on the way you spend. Download Birch, B-I-R-C-H, in the App Store and sign up for free today. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall hear about Trump's latest actions regarding Israel, Norman Finkelstein's take on the siege in Gaza, what Israel has to do with local policing in the U.S., why prominent Nazi Richard Spencer thinks Israel is a good model for separating the races, and Ian Pape addresses some of the myths about Israel. Our clips today come from Intercepted, Counterspin, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, and The Real News Network. Vice President Mike Pence went to the Middle East this month, and he visited Egypt, where he hung out with the authoritarian U.S.-backed dictator Abdel Fattah el-Sisi before heading to Jordan in his campaign to flaunt President Trump's hardline and contentious position on moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Mike Pence ended his trip, of course, in Israel, and he gave a speech to the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. Many U.S. presidents have said that the United States recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and have said, As soon as I take office, I will begin the process of moving the United States ambassador to the city of Israel as chosen as its capital. I continue to say that uh, Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel. And I have said that before and I will say it again. What's new here is that Trump is the first president to state that the embassy will be moved to the holy city. Last month, I also took an action endorsed unanimously by the U.S. Senate just months before. I recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The peace talks that Trump has put Jared Kushner in charge of appear to be going swimmingly. Palestine boycotted Mike Pence's trip. Its leaders refused to meet with him. Mike Pence's trip comes on the heels of last month's status of Jerusalem vote at the United Nations General Assembly, where the overwhelming majority of nations in the world voted against the U.S. position that Jerusalem is Israel's capital, and they passed a resolution calling on nations not to move their embassies to Jerusalem. As the U.S. often does, under both Democrats and Republicans, at the United Nations, Trump's ambassador, Nikki Haley, along with the president himself, bullied and threatened countries and actually kind of threatened the whole of the United Nations. Nikki Haley said she would be taking names that the U.S. would remember this day and would look at cutting funds to those who voted against the U.S. position. The only countries that did support Washington were Togo, Micronesia, Nauru, Palau, Marshall Islands, Guatemala, and Honduras. All of this comes as one of the most underreported stories of the Trump era continues to receive scant attention in the United States. Namely, evidence that the Trump administration has colluded with the state of Israel, including efforts to attempt to get Russia to aid Israel in undermining the Obama administration at the United Nations 
while Obama was still president. I'm joined now from Aman Jordan by Ali Abu Nima. He is the founder of electronicintifada.net and the author of two books, One Country, A Bold Proposal to End the Israeli-Palestinian Impasse, and Battle for Justice in Palestine, The Case for a Single Democratic State in Palestine. Ali Abu Nima, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you, Jeremy. Let's start, first of all, with the most recent developments uh, with Vice President Mike Pence going to Israel. What are your thoughts on that visit and the impact and the message that the Trump administration continues to send to Israel? The message it sends was really made visual in what happened in the Knesset, uh, where Pence gave this sort of Christian Zionist fanatical speech. But just last month, President Donald Trump made history. He righted a 70-year wrong. He kept his word to the American people when he announced that the United States of America will finally acknowledge Jerusalem is Israel's capital. And when the 13 Arab Israeli or Palestinian Israeli lawmakers stood up to protest and held signs saying Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine, they were dragged out bodily by Uh, security while Netanyahu and his government were applauding. And this was such a shocking and blatant scene, I think, for many people that even NBC's Andrea Mitchell, and that's not a network known for uh, taking big risks when it comes to Israel, tweeted, imagine what it would look like if the Capitol Police dragged members of the Congressional Black Caucus off the House floor. That was actually a pretty good analogy for what was happening. And Trump followed it up in Davos by saying because Palestinian leaders refused to meet Pence, that uh, he was going to further punish the most vulnerable Palestinians, uh, threatening to cut even more aid from the uh, humanitarian agency UNRWA. When they disrespected us a week ago by not allowing our great vice president to see them, and we give them hundreds of millions of dollars in aid and support, tremendous numbers, numbers that nobody understands. That money is on the table, and that money is not going to them unless they sit down and negotiate peace. In some ways, I think it's a more honest expression of U.S. policy. Not exactly refreshing, but definitely honest. And what about Jared Kushner that Trump has put in this position of, quote unquote, making a deal between the Palestinians and the Israelis? Basically, what it amounts to is pushing the Palestinians to a total surrender where they would be given a state in name only, what would more accurately be called a Bantustan, the sort of fake state set up by the apartheid government of South Africa in the 1970s and 80s to say, look, black people have their own independent states now, so stop asking us to end apartheid. That's basically the approach the Israelis want to take. And the outline is a few enclaves totally surrounded by Israel, nothing in Jerusalem, no right of return for Palestinian refugees, 
uh, but you can call this a state if you want to. That's the direction it's going. I think, to be fair to the Trump administration, this is the direct descendant of all the so-called American peace plans that various administrations have pushed for decades since Bill Clinton. The big difference here, I think, is the regional situation or architecture where now the Trump administration is teaming up with a major power in the region, Saudi Arabia, and to a lesser extent, Egypt. So they have signed up to help bully and pressure the Palestinians into accepting this. And that's part of the kind of regional approach of taking the Saudis, the Israelis, the Egyptians, and the other so-called Sunni Arab states, aligning them together in a big confrontation with Iran. Let's get the Palestinians out of the way. This is a thorn in the side. Let's force them to surrender. And then we can say that that issue is done with. On this issue of Trump physically moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, he and his administration are now saying that that is going to happen on a faster timetable than they originally had intended. What's actually going on here? Where the U.S. ambassador sits is really of little practical concern to Palestinians. What happened with the Jerusalem issue with Trump's announcement back in December of U.S. recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital is very interesting because this was clearly a demand from the far right, particularly the radical Christianist base of the Republican Party in the United States for many, many years. And so Trump gave them that. What it means politically is very interesting because at the time Trump made that announcement, he said, well, we're recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, but we are definitely not taking a position on final status issues, the borders of Israeli sovereignty, you know, whether the Palestinians will have any rights in Jerusalem or so on. That's what he said back in December when he made the announcement. But what he said in Davos and what he said before that, is I took Jerusalem off the table. Hardest subject they had to talk about was Jerusalem. We took Jerusalem off the table, so we don't have to talk about it anymore. They never got past Jerusalem. So he's undercutting his own assurance that he wasn't trying to predetermine the issue and take away Palestinian rights. The other effect of what he did, which I think could be put in the category of unintended consequences, is he united pretty much the whole world in standing up and saying, we reject the Israeli and American position on Jerusalem. So whereas the issue had been dormant for many years, to the point where I think the Israelis really thought that if the Americans make this announcement, the rest of the world will sort of quietly follow on. What actually happened was a pretty unanimous vote in the UN condemning the US decision and calling it null and void. So in a sense, Trump helped to reawaken opposition to Israeli and American positions on Jerusalem. You're talking about the UN process, and of course, Israelis' occupation of Palestine is regularly condemned by the overwhelming majority of nations uh, of the world represented at the UN. And I want to ask you, though, about 
one specific vote that occurred at the end of President Obama's time in office. And this has been discussed in some media outlets, but really hasn't been as big of a story as obviously should be. And that is this vote that the Obama administration uh, was indicating it was going to abstain from. The Trump camp was apoplectic over and Jared Kushner, who, as we know, is has been designated by Trump as the peacemaker here, was at an event with Haim Sabin, who is a major Democratic Party fundraiser. An issue that uh, I personally want to thank you for. You and your team were... Uh, taking steps to try and get the uh, United Nations Security Council to not go along with what ended up being an abstention by the U.S. against 50-year-old tradition. Uh, some people might criticize, as far as I know, there's nothing illegal there, but uh, I think that this crowd and myself want to thank you for making that effort. So thank you very much. They talked to the Russian ambassador, not about Russia's agenda, but trying to pressure Russia into taking a pro-Israel position on behalf of the incoming Trump administration. What's going on here? What came out back in December in the context of Michael Flynn's plea deal was that Flynn had lied to the FBI about two conversations with the Russian ambassador. And all of this got reported in, you know, the mainstream U.S. media, what I call regime media, and that includes uh, MSNBC, you know, very breathlessly as more evidence of collusion with between the Trump people and the Russians. In fact, what the Flynn plea deal showed and what the proffer and the documents that were filed in federal court showed was not Flynn's collusion with Russia in order to serve Russian interests, but rather an attempt to serve Israeli interests. And in short, what happened, Benjamin Netanyahu asked Jared Kushner to do everything possible to undermine the Obama administration's policy. This was during the transition. So Obama was still president, but the Trump transition team was asked by Netanyahu to contact all these governments, including Russia, to try to sabotage the vote that was taking place in the UN in December 2016, condemning Israel's settlements in occupied Palestinian land. The effort failed. The vote passed. The Obama administration abstained. But what was actually happening was the Trump team was colluding with the foreign power to undermine U.S. policy. But that foreign power was Israel, not Russia. And of course, um, Michael Wolff in his book, Fire and Fury, does quote Steve Bannon, lay out what you learned about Trump collusion with Israel from Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury. The book recounts a conversation between Bannon and Roger Ailes early on during the transition when they're talking about who to appoint and what the administration's first moves will be. And Bannon says, you know, day one, we're going to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Let Jordan 
deal with the West Bank, let Egypt deal with uh, Gaza, or let them go down trying. And he says, Netanyahu's on board, Sheldon Adelson is on board, and that's what we're going to do. So this is an Israel-first agenda. And what Bannon is saying, you know, he mentions Sheldon Adelson, who gave, what was it, $25, $30 million to the Trump campaign through various uh, vehicles, and $5 million to the Trump inauguration committee, and he is calling the shots. This has gotten no play in U.S. media. Imagine if this was a Russian oligarch instead of a pro-Israel oligarch, basically dictating the foreign policy of the Trump administration. You'd have Rachel Maddow screaming it from the rooftops, but instead there's silence. Now, the other thing, you mentioned Haim Saban. Haim Saban is basically the democratic Sheldon Adelson. And so when he was on stage with Jared Kushner back in December at this Brookings uh, forum, Saban and Kushner were getting on like a house on fire, even though Haim Saban had put millions of dollars into trying to get Hillary Clinton elected. Because when it comes to fanatical, extreme, unconditional support for Israel, that's the last truly bipartisan issue. Maybe that and war and, you know, secret surveillance. The other interesting trend that I think is worth noting is that what's happening on the ground, and this is being shown off in survey after survey after survey, and that came out again with the Pew Research Center poll, that Israel is now completely a partisan issue in the United States. And that Pew poll 79% of Republicans sympathize more with Israel than with the Palestinians, but just 27% of Democrats say that. And in a poll last year, more than half of Democrats said they would support sanctions or tougher measures on Israel because of its settlements. That's what's happening in the country. That's what's happening in the grassroots, the growing support for Palestinian rights, opposition to the unquestioning support for Israel. But it is not being reflected by political elites, and it's not being reflected by media elites, which is why we have this total silence from CNN to Fox to MSNBC, you know, the so-called political spectrum of U.S. regime media. Israeli soldiers shot 14-year-old Palestinian Mohammed Tamimi point-blank in the face with a rubber-jacketed bullet on December 14, 2017, in Nabi Saleh, a small village in the occupied West Bank. The boy was placed in a medically-induced coma. An hour later, Mohammed's 16-year-old cousin, Ahed Tamimi, slapped and kicked at an armed Israeli soldier in the entrance to her family home. After video of her actions went viral, Israeli soldiers raided the Tamimi home at 3 a.m., arresting Ahed and confiscating the family's phones and computers. Ahed Tamimi has been denied bail and could face years in prison. 
As Gregory Shupak wrote for FAIR.org, a January 1st Newsweek article described the incident as the teenager assaulting Israeli soldiers, threatening to Israeli soldiers and then hitting them in the face, pushing the soldiers as well as kicking them, hitting them in the face and throwing stones at them. Newsweek called her actions assaults and an attack. It failed to report that Israeli soldiers had just shot her 14-year-old cousin. CNN, Shupak reports, also ran a piece that left out the most serious act of violence that day, as did Reuters and the Associated Press. Newsweek and CBS left out the occupation that structures every interaction between Palestinians and Israelis entirely. And none of the pieces noted that occupied people have a legal right to resist occupation. A New York Times story described Nabi Saleh as having long-running disputes with a nearby Israeli settlement, Khalamish, that Nabi Saleh residents say has stolen their land and water. The paper did not say that Khalamish is illegal under international law. Finally, Newsweek says Tamimi has now been indicted on five counts of assaulting security forces, that she's charged with interfering with the soldiers' duties by preventing them from returning to their post. But, as with other accounts, readers would not know that the proceedings are taking place in a military court. Tamimi is being tried by the same occupying military that shot her cousin. According to the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, the military court system Palestinians in the occupied West Bank face, quote, does not grant the right to due process and the rights derived from it, close quote. Our guest today, author and scholar Norman Finkelstein, author of the new book, Gaza, An Inquest into Its Martyrdom. The book published as Israel's Facing a Possible International Criminal Court War Crimes Probe over its 2014 assault on Gaza, which killed more than 2,100 Palestinians, including over 500 children. I want to turn to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talking about the 2014 military offensive in Gaza. He was speaking to Brian Williams of NBC News. You know, at a certain point— you say, what choice have you got? What would you do? What would you do if American cities, where are you sitting now, Brian, would be rocketed, would absorb hundreds of rockets? Uh, you know, you know what would you, you'd say? You'd say to your leader, a man's got to do what a man's got to do, and you'd say a country's got to do what a country's got to do. We have to defend ourselves. We try to do it with the minimum uh, amount of uh, force or uh, with targeting civ military uh, targets as best as we can, but we'll act to defend ourselves. No country can live like this. That was Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu justifying the 2014 military offensive in Gaza, that the International Criminal Court is apparently um, about to in uh, open up a war crimes investigation into. Well, um, Benjamin Netanyahu says two things. Number one, Israel had no option and number two, that it used the minimum amount of force. Well, let's look quickly at those two points. Point number one, 
Everybody agreed that the reason they went, once the fighting began, Hamas had one goal. The goal was to end the siege of Gaza, to lift the siege. Under international law, that siege is illegal. It constitutes collective punishment, which is illegal under international law. The siege has been condemned by everybody in the international community. He had an option. He didn't have to use force. He simply had to lift the siege. And then there wouldn't have been a conflict with Gaza. Number two, he claims he used minimum force. There's a lot to say about that. You can decide for yourself whether it's minimum force when Israel leveled 18,000 homes. How many Israeli homes were leveled? One. Israel killed 550 children. How many Israeli children were killed? One. Now, you might say, well, that's because Israel has a sophisticated civil defense system or Israel has Iron Dome. I won't go into that. I don't have time now. But there's a simple test. The test is, what did the Israeli combatants themselves see? What did they themselves say? We have the documentation, a report put out by the Israeli ex-service, uh, ex-combatant organization, Breaking the Silence. It's about 110 pages. You couldn't believe it. You know, I'll tell you, Amy, I still remember when I was reading it. I was in Turkey. I was going to a book festival. I was sitting in the back of a car and reading these descriptions of what the soldiers did. My skin was crawling. I was like shaking. Soldier after soldier after soldier. Now bear in mind, you want to say they're partisan, the soldiers? Read the testimonies. They're not contrite. They're not remorseful. They're just describing what happened. There's no contrition. These aren't lefties, supporters of BDS. What do they describe? One after another after another says, our orders were shoot to kill anything that moves and anything that doesn't move. One after another after another says, Israel used insane amounts of firepower in Gaza. Israel used lunatic amounts of firepower in Gaza. These were the Israeli soldiers. The soldiers, they're describing it. One after another says, we blew up, destroyed, systematically, methodically raised every house in sight. What does that mean, every house in sight? 70% of the people in Gaza, they're refugees. It means they lost their homeland. The last thing they have, the only thing they have, the only thing they've ever had is their home. And the Israelis went in like a wrecking crew with their D9 bulldozers. Explain how it began. How what? How the 2014 Israeli military invasion of you know, Gaza These began. are hard things to explain because it depends on where you want to start. Where I start is at the end of April 2014, a national unity government was formed between, Israel, between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. And the United States and the EU, surprisingly, they didn't break off negotiations with this new unity government, although it included a um, terrorist organization. And it enraged— You're using air quotes. You're saying what the U.S. called a terrorist organization. What Israel calls a terrorist organization, because at that time, the U.S. was willing to negotiate. 
uh, and Netanyahu went into a rage because he was being ignored over Iran. Now he's being ignored over Hamas. And so he finds a pretext. I don't want to go into the details now. He finds a pretext to try to provoke Hamas into reacting so that he can say, you see, they're a terrorist organization. And then it quickly uh, spiraled downwards, as it typically does. Uh, and then Israel went in. There was the uh, air assault. And then July 17th, the day the Malaysian airliner went down over the Ukraine, um, Netanyahu used that moment. The plane was down in the afternoon, and he allowed launches the ground invasion in the evening. Uh, you'd be surprised how, how finely attuned the Israelis are to the American news cycle. They begin Operation Protective Edge in 2008 with uh, Obama's election to the presidency on November 4th. They begin the ground invasion of, of Gaza during, uh, well, 2004 was Operation Cast Lead. They begin Cast Lead in November 4th, 2008, when Obama's elected president. They begin Operation Protective Edge, then ground invasion, on July 17th, when the airliner uh, is downed over the Ukraine. All the cameras are now riveted over there, and so they launch the attack. Um, and the attack was, well, let me just quote to you Peter Moore, who was the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross. And I was even surprised by his remark. Peter Moore said, and I'm quoting him, paraphrasing him, but almost verbatim. He said, in my entire professional life, I have never seen destruction as I saw in Gaza. And that's coming from the, the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross, who is accustomed to seeing, witnessing war zones. Uh, what was done there was, uh, it was a crime against humanity. You take a place like Shijaya. Shijaya, it's a very densely populated neighborhood of 90,000 people. Israel dropped, believe it or not, it's hard to even fathom, more than 100 one-ton bombs on Shujaya. More than 100 one-ton bombs on Shujaya. Did the same thing to Rafa, did the same thing to Kuza, did the same thing to the whole Gaza Strip. And then you have this guy come along, and he said, we use discriminate force, we used proportionate force. I wanted to go to, after the an attack on a U.N. shelter in 2014, the Israeli military attacking in Gaza, which killed many Palestinian civilians, the spokesperson for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency mm -hmm. for Palestine Refugees, broke down and cried during an interview in Al Jazeera. His name is Christopher Gunness. The rights of Palestinians, even their children, are wholesale denied, and it's appalling. <clears throat> Christopher Gunness is starting to cry. My pleasure. <laughs> That's 
Christopher Gunness as the camera turns away from him, his head in his hands, later tweeting, there are times when tears speak more eloquently than words, mine pale into insignificance compared with Gaza's. Uh, Norman Finkelstein, to, have we have to, two oh, minutes left. I to know Chris Gunness. He's a really terrific guy. I hope he doesn't lose his job because I said that. Uh, but he is a special guy. He's an unusual guy. He worked in Gaza. He's married. He's married to a man, he's married to a Jewish man, and he's married to an Israeli man. So you can imagine that Hamas was not, <laughs> was not thrilled with him. But he's very principled, and the tears were real. Anybody who lives there, has even passed through there, their heart breaks. That's what's, what's been done to the people of Gaza. What do you think needs to be done now? Well, it's clear the first thing that has to be done is the siege has to be lifted. And the UN Human Rights Council, although its report was a total and complete whitewash and disgrace, uh, Mary McGowan Davis was the author of it, they did say, according to the law, the siege has to be list lifted immediately and unconditionally. That's the law. It has to be li lifted immediately and unconditionally. That's the first thing that has to be done. The siege has to end, the occupation has to end, and the people of Gaza, after 50 godforsaken years, should have the right to breathe and live a normal life. And how do you think that's going to happen? Um, it's a very tough moment right now, but there are always possibilities. In my opinion, there is the possibility in Gaza of a nonviolent uh, mass resistance trying to force open the um, checkpoints and the West Bank. I don't have time to go through it now. I think a mass strategy of smacking Israeli soldiers, women and girls, uh, in the, uh, in the uh, footsteps of Ahed Tamimi, that kind of Who strategy. Who faces many years in prison right Yes. It, nobody's saying it's without risks. Ten seconds. But just as the children of Gaza when they threw stones at the Israelis in 1988 during the first intifada, shifted international public opinion. I think the people, the women of Gaza, if they have a Me Too campaign, I smacked an Israeli soldier today. I think that can win international public opinion also. You talked about a nonviolent campaign yeah, throughout I consider, the occupied uh, areas. Look, I'm in the tradition of Gandhi, and Gandhi was very clear. When you're facing huge odds against you, and you use kinds of force like scratching, slapping, Three kicking, seconds. Gandhi said, that's not violent. What does Israel have to do with local policing in the United States? Well, Israelis are actually training local police and, and private security forces all over the world. That's really one of their one of their big businesses. But what's so fascinating to me about this story is that it's been on my radar, at least, for a decade, if not more. It's something that's not a secret by any means. I mean, these trips are advertised on the websites of the groups that sponsor them, and yet it is never talked about. It's really fascinating to me that even now that we have so much attention on police departments in the U.S., on the militarization of police, the fact that these officers, and we're talking about hundreds of them, are going to Israel yearly to train with military forces there is just not talk about. And I think that's quite fascinating. I mean, I first encountered Israeli 
private security. In 2005, when I was in New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, there was a firm called Instinctive Shooting International, ISI, that was hired to guard a wealthy white enclave in New Orleans. And when I was researching that time, I was sort of stunned to see how deeply embedded Israeli firms are in every level of the U.S. homeland security apparatus in terms of training and also the national security apparatus. That, to me, I think is one of the most disturbing aspects of this, that Israel is viewed in the world as one of the most efficient assassins that exists on the international scene. And now they're increasingly working with American police forces armed with what are clearly weapons of war, not policing. Right. You think American cops don't need any further militarizing, but I guess you can always get better at killing, I suppose. But no, I, I actually met Israeli security forces in Haiti in the aftermath of the earthquake there in 2010. So they're everywhere. This is like a, a huge business for Israel. It makes sense, right? When your entire country has gone through the military and everybody has military experience, that's you know a great thing to have in your resume if you're going to look to make money, that's something you can market. And what's really interesting is they've been able to market their experience in in the occupied territories and their occupation of Palestine has become this selling point, really, that's put on brochures that sort of highlight Israel's uh, strength as a counterterrorism force. But when they train American cops on counterterrorism, a majority of what they're teaching them ends up being used against civilians in the U.S. I mean, most police departments in the U.S. do not face serious terrorism threats. This is an incredible uh, part of your, your story. I just want to share this with our listeners. You write, In the aftermath of 9-11, Israel seized on its decades-long experience as an occupying force to brand itself a world leader in counterterrorism. U.S. law enforcement agencies took the Jewish state up on its expertise by participating in exchange programs sponsored by an array of pro-Israel groups like the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, and the Anti-Defamation League. What on earth are those lobbying entities doing arranging counterterrorism, so-called counterterrorism training for U.S. police forces. I mean, and I think perhaps the most ironic of them is the Anti-Defamation League, which really presents itself as a civil rights organization that here in the U.S. counters supposedly abusive policing. And uh, they, in the aftermath of Ferguson, have been very strongly opposed to people that draw comparisons between the occupation of Palestine and and militarization of police in the U.S. You know, a lot of people in Ferguson were sort of comparing themselves to Gaza, which is questionable in, in many ways, obviously. But but there is definitely a, a solidarity that's being built between occupied people in different ways. Right. And you talked about in, in recent days, there was this delegation of top U.S. law enforcement officers in Israel for a seminar that was sponsored by the Anti-Defamation League. It was a national counterterrorism seminar, topics such as leadership in a time of terror, balancing the fight against crime and terrorism. More than 200 law enforcement executives from over 100 departments in the U.S. participated in this? Have been participated in this since 2004 when it first launched. This week, there were several top U.S. officials. Sometimes immigration enforcement agents also participate. Sometimes campus police participate in these trainings. They go to Israel and they learn from Israeli police as well as the IDF, so the, the Defense Forces military, uh, as well as security forces that really work on, on border patrol. And, and I think the most important thing to remember here is that these are U.S. cops that are tasked with enforcing civil law and criminal law here in the U.S., but they're learning from people that are enforcing military rule over occupied people. So the, the parallel is really quite interesting. I mean, Israeli security forces operate in a non-democratic context, and these are U.S. public servants that are learning those tactics, presumably to bring back and and use against U.S. citizens. 
you specifically talk in your article about the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Commander Morgan Kane, who attended the training. What did the D.C. police say to you when you reached out to them? Right. So, well, first of all, we only know about Morgan Kane, who's a female commander, actually, in D.C. And she we only know about this because Jewish Voice for Peace, which is one of the organizations that's been exposing the strips, was able to find her name in a document they FOIA'd. And uh, so I reached out to the police department in D.C. And basically, they, as many others, really framed the strip as a counterterrorism opportunity, an opportunity for DC police to learn, you know, techniques that will keep DC residents and tourists safe. That's really what they present. Never mind that DC also has major problems, as many other cities do, with policing its own poor black, brown citizens. It has a history of, you know, abuses. There have been a number of police killings there, as there have been in other cities. And so it's really difficult to kind of draw a line and say, I'm learning about counterterrorism and I'll come back and not use it against everybody else and still police in a constitutional manner. I mean, these things really are connected. You can't separate one from the other. There's kind of this idea that that counterterrorism is okay, but non-constitutional policing isn't. And and even on the counterterrorism front, I mean, there's plenty, obviously, of abuse that comes out of these trips. For instance, the NYPD infamous Muslim spying program a few years back, that was pretty much modeled on the surveillance of Palestinians in the West Bank. And one of the officers, one of the top commanders, actually, in the NYPD that was behind it had participated in one of these trainings in Israel. So you really see these techniques and how these methods are brought back home and put in place against U.S. citizens, in this case, Muslim citizens. But one other thing I would point out is that the exchange also goes both ways. I mean, you'd think Israelis don't have anything to learn from Americans in terms of oppressing populations, but they they do. And one thing that, for instance, happened last year in Israel is that the government passed basically the equivalent of our stop and frisk law, which, of course, has been very much contested in a number of U.S. cities. Meanwhile, in Israel, this new law is essentially doing the same thing. And of course, because the law itself is so vague, where basically any officers can stop anyone they suspect of being up to something, essentially, that's been applied very discriminatively. And it's, you know, with racism towards Palestinians. Yeah, there, it's, it's de- there's definitely a lot of cohesion between um, how the U.S. Uh, conducts itself in the world and how Israel conducts itself in Palestine. And increasingly, we're seeing those two merge in the U.S. But I wanted to get your analysis on, once again, the violence that we saw of the police in St. Louis in recent days. I mean, I always feel like St. Louis is just a little bit ahead of the rest of the country in terms of finding out the flashpoints and really sort of showing you in a nutshell what policing and the relationship between police and black and brown communities in this country is. As you know, I was in Ferguson three years ago. I'm kind of beginning to see the same thing happening again. I don't know if you saw from people that were on the scene, there was a moment when after making a number of arrests, police reportedly started chanting, Whose streets are streets? Whose streets are streets? Which is, of course, the protester anthem by default. And and the fact that police would have really did the arrogance and the nerve to chant this in the streets that they are supposed to serve is just astounding to me. So really, St. Louis, I think, captures this kind of conflict. St. Louis has in the past been an indicator of how these conflicts will play out. We'll be watching for sure.
So have you seen this clip of uh, Richard Spencer on... Um, uh, no, I have not. This is uh, interesting. So Richard Spencer was interviewed on Channel 2 News uh, with Donnie Kushmaro. It's uh, Israeli news. And um, it's, it, it's interesting because, one, you get to see how Richard Spencer wants to portray this movement of fascism. And we should note that Bibi Netanyahu's son said that um, the left is far more dangerous than these fascists. But here's Richard Spencer equating his fascism with Zionism. And um, it's an interesting analog. Here we go. You know that uh, you're speaking now uh, with uh, Jewish journalists. Uh, most of our viewers are Jews. How should we, how should I feel? As an Israeli citizen, someone who understands your identity, the, who has a sense of nationhood and peoplehood and the history and uh, of an experience of the Jewish people, you should respect someone like me who has analogous feelings about whites. I mean, you could you could say that I am a white Zionist in the sense that I I care about my people. I want us to have a secure homeland that's for for us and ourselves, just like you want a secure homeland in Israel. Um, I mean, I think it's a little bit facile. There's there's perhaps some uh, element of analogy there although i would say that um the impetus for a jewish homeland came from basically at the hands of an ideology that he's that spencer is espousing yeah i mean obviously at its base it's incredibly offensive that israel is founded in light of the holocaust which spencer is totally in line and we shouldn't be shy about saying it and at the same time israel is an apartheid state today and it tracks with that sort of politics. That's also reality. Yeah, that is the problem, is that um, they have, since their founding, or since I would say probably closer to the past 30-some-odd uh, years, um, begun to, I mean, maybe maybe there's an argument that it naturally would result in this, but it, I don't think it had to, um, where... They are denying a huge percentage of the, not their citizens, but the people they control rights as citizens in their country. That's very problematic. And they're doing it in the name of national security. And it certainly makes it too easy for someone like Richard Spencer to make that analogy. And when you get into Gaza and, I mean, a whole other dimension of, of keeping it on a diet, according to one Israeli general, I mean, and there's no, there's also a, a longer history of the, the neo-fascist parties in Europe drawing connections with it very, at the very least, the right in Israel. And if we're being real, I mean, the left is totally marginal. I mean, the only party that operates at all in Israel in the quasi mainstream and they're still pretty marginal that we would recognize as like liberal is Moretz labor and that is not no. center right and everything else is hard right and many of Bibi's 
cabinet or bird to the right of him. I'd be curious as to how uh, how that uh, that interview played in Israel. I think there's clearly a contingent now in Israel that doesn't have a because problem. You they don't make... see themselves as liberal internationalists who want to protect the Jewish identity. They see themselves as ethno-nationalists more in right. line with what he's talking about. Right. It's a problem. It's um, it's a real problem. It's a problem. Uh, it's a problem both in terms of what uh, how it reflects on Israel, and it's also a problem to see that guy. I mean, as he goes on after that, he poo-poo's conservatives and uh, really wants to project a sort of a professionalism and a reasonableness. Uh, I should add that the United States was not founded as a white country. No, it was not. And I would also add that um, to the extent that there's a significant number of African Americans in this country, not necessarily their choice. Right. Um, From the founding, we commit genocide to get the place to begin with right. and then import slave labor. And, I mean, to be fair, in terms of the analogy, you had to, uh, at the yeah, very least... There was a uh, cleansing of Palestinians yes. in the late 40s. There's no doubt. That's objective history. Here with Ilan Pape, um, Israeli revisionist scholar, I guess we could call you that. Um, and you're coming out with two new books. And I just got a galley of your latest, which is called The Ten, it's the Ten Myths of Israel. That's right. Um, so what is the biggest myth about Israel? Would it be, um, you know, a, a land for a people, for a people without a land? Uh, Israel is um, the only democracy in the Middle mm. East. I mean, what, what do you think the biggest myth is? I think it's very difficult to choose, and that's why I you didn't needed, have it like a top ten list. I didn't like, have. I I, I chose uh, chronology as okay. the main uh, regulator for the uh, for the myth. So I began with the land without people and people without land. But I really think that the biggest myth uh, of all has to do with how each of this myth does not allow uh, us to understand the real nature of Zionism and the project of Zionism, and the nature of Israel today. Yeah, I think uh, when you listen to Netanyahu, and he's sort of this master of expounding on this myth that Israel's not only not a settler colonial state, but that it's sort of a normal democracy that has flowered out of the Middle East almost organically because of the Jewish ancestral connection. Um, and then when he talks about the conflict, or I wouldn't even call it a conflict, I'd call it a crisis, he always goes back to the Hebron riots. He goes back to these events that um, occurred before the state of Israel was founded, for example, um, attacks on Jewish communities in Yaffa, and never explains how those communities came there and what the real story was. Um, so how do you challenge Netanyahu's narrative right. of um, Jewish Arab relations in historic Palestine? It's, I think it's deeper than that. And Netanyahu in this uh, respect represents a very a, a deep uh, uh, in, uh, Israeli Jewish conviction. 
that they are the indigenous people of Palestine and the Palestinians are the settlers. Yeah. They are the aliens. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and this is the starting point. The starting point is we are the indigenous. Yes, we have, we haven't been there for a few hundreds of maybe 2000 years, but we are the indigenous people of Palestine. And from there, everything else emanates. Yeah. Uh, and I think the way to challenge it is, is, really by using this paradigm of settler colonialism because it was it's not exceptional for a settler colonial movement to claim to be the indigenous people of the place that they occupy colonize and quite often genocide it happened before uh, in other places and i think that's something that uh, allows people who either were victims of other settler colonial projects or people who are part of settler colonial states like the United States, right. but are very familiar nowadays with their own history right. and understand their own origins to, to understand that actually it's not exceptional. It's not exception. The only exceptional part of it is the denial, yeah. not the very historical act itself. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these myths are actually just Hasbara arguments by, uh, in many cases, morons for the consumption of morons. But I found that in our world, there are a lot of, I mean, it falls on fertile soil. I mean, the education system isn't very good in the West. Um, so you have these um, Netanyahu, and I think, you know, this is kind of a common feature of Hasbara, trying to draw a distinction between settler colonialism and traditional metropole colonialism. And you'll hear him say, you know, we're not, we're not the uh, French colonizing Algeria. We have nowhere to go back to. You know, this is our homeland and we can't go back anywhere. Um, you know, what, what, how do you, how do you respond yeah. to that? And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that we, um, we've failed to do is explain how settler colonialism is in many ways more pernicious than traditional colonialism. Absolutely. The exceptional part of the story is that settler colonialism made certain connections or made certain assumption, which were accepted in the 19th century, but looked ridiculous, inhuman, and non-democratic in the 20th century. And yet, in the particular case of Israel, they still remain valid. For instance, the claim that the only way you can create a democracy in a country which has settlers and natives is if the settlers are always the majority, which is the argument of the liberal Zionists, not the, uh, not the right-wing Zionists. The liberal Zionists, the whole peace process is based on the idea that the only way democracy can be sustained in Palestine is if the Jews are a majority in their own homeland. Right. So this is a ridiculous assumption that in any other uh, context would be rejected as racist. But in the case of Israel, is accepted. Right. And, and I think that that's where the interesting part of the analysis comes into, I think, in, also in my book, in the 10 minutes, why educated, well-read people in the West did not see this? Or did they see it and decided to accept it for reasons of guilt, uh, anti-Semitism, because they didn't want the Jews to, to stay in Europe? God knows why. Everyone had their own reasons for that. For the second uh, uh, point that you were making, I think that it's very important to highlight when you talk about any settler colonial project, what Patrick Wolf called the logic of the elimination of the native. That you cannot create a new settler colonial society or a settler nation state uh, from the settler colonial's perspective as long as there is an indigenous native population. there. So you have to get rid of them. 
genocide. You genocide them as you did in America or impose apartheid and Bantustan on them as you did in South Africa or ethnically cleanse them as you did in Palestine. The means vary from one historical yeah. case study to the other. The logic is the same logic. And what is amazing is that this logic is still legitimized in the 21st century in the case of Israel under the guise of slogans such as the only uh, democracy in the Middle East, uh, a, a country that wants peace but doesn't find the right partner for it, and all the other mythologies that are connected to the peace process. Yeah, I think that the logic of the underlying logic of Zionism uh, of maintaining a demographic majority, a sort of ethnic overclass through, um, you know, violent dem- uh, demographic social engineering is scarcely ever interrogated in our mainstream media, um, in academia. It's even very rare to see it. Um, would you say that that has fueled the um, rhetoric and the politics of the far right in, in, West, in Western Europe? And in the United States, where you hear someone like Stephen Bannon, who's the chief counselor to Donald Trump, the main intellectual force behind him, say um, at a major conference in Washington that the United States is not just an economy. It has to represent a culture. Um, we, we have wide and sometimes divergent opinions, but I think we, the center core of what we believe, that we're a nation with an economy, not an economy just in some global marketplace with open borders, but we are a nation with a, a culture and a, uh, and a reason for being. And it's this culturalist narrative, um, which implies that the United States is white and Christian and it must maintain a white Christian demographic majority. Um, do you think that that has anything to do with the legitimization uh, that Israel's experienced? I, um, I do think so. I think if you are a member of a right-wing intellectual movement or ideological movement or political movement, You watch Israel desperately in a way. You say, my ideas, my assumptions, my discourse that is regarded as fringe, lunatic, and dangerous is welcomed when it is uh, uttered by the uh, spokespersons for the Israeli Jewish state or by Israel itself. It's exactly that. Uh, The dehumanization that Israel is allowed to express through its discourse, through its policies, through its activities, is not different from any racist uh, uh, approach by any other group. In fact, settler colonialism is one of the most uh, dangerous forms of modern racism. Uh, and and uh, it's not surprising that there are two ways in which Israel was trying to challenge this or, or protect this kind of exceptionalism. Because yeah. it's very precarious. It can, it can you know, one day the truth can be discovered. And people would say, wait a minute, you're not different from an extreme right movement in America. You are, you are the same, especially when the right wing in Israel becomes stronger. So there are two ways that trying to challenge it. One is by claiming that, oh, we, we don't use violent means if you're a liberal Zionist. We're not looking for violent means of keeping uh, demographic purity. We're actually willing to give up some territory in order to keep demographic purity, or we enclave, we incarcerate, we besiege the Palestinians in small Bantustan so that we will be demographically pure. In Israel, it's liberals saying build the wall. Absolutely, absolutely, liberal. Of course, because this means I don't want to use supposedly violent means. I'm not expelling people. We're not going to transfer anyone. Exactly. We're just not going to 
let them leave. We're just going to say, the, what was, uh, it was Ehud Barak's uh, campaign slogan. Yeah, we are here and they are Us over there. here, them over there, and exactly. we would recognize that here as sort of segregation. Exactly. But it's hard segregation. Absolutely. And the second means, and the second means by which they, they, they try to, to sort of hide it is, is the one that Netanyahu prefers, because he cannot say that he's uh, willing to, uh, to give up territory. And this is, uh, elevating this idea uh, of un- uh, elevating anti-Semitism into supposedly a new phenomenon, right, and the, the new anti-Semitism. Uh, and, and to say that uh, uh, when you criticize Israeli settler colonialism, you're not criticizing racism, but you're actually racist yourself. Yeah. Uh, like the indigenous issue. Uh, if, uh, if you, the Palestinians claim that they are indigenous, we will claim that we are the indigenous and right. they are the settlers. Right. It's this really, uh, a new speak. Which world. actually embraces the true logic of anti-Semitism that conflates Zionism with Jews and holds them responsible collectively for all of Zionism's crimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's above another layer of uniformity or connection between the idea that Jews should be settler colonialists in Asia or the Arab world and not live as communities in the West, which is another kind of joint uh, uh, platform for anti-Semitism and Zionism. Right, which opens the door for this kind of um, alliance of convenience we've seen with parties like the National Front in France. Uh, The Jabbik party even in Hungary is moving away from its um, traditional anti-Semitism into a more pro-Zionist. We see the Austrian Freedom Party. um, Strasse was hosted by the Likud party. This is a party founded by Nazis in Austria. He was hosted for a visit of the Holocaust Museum by the Likud party. Um, You go across the board to all these far-right parties down to Trump and the Republican party, and they've all become pro-Israel. Well, holding on to this um, idea that, you know, Jews really belong somewhere else. And, and this is the whole notion of the Palestinians as immigrants. You have immigrants in Holland, yeah. uh, and you have all the right to vote for a right-wing party because they are really Muslim immigrants, and they create all the problem. We also have Muslim immigrants in Israel, and they're using the same methods right. to identify themselves, to... to uh, uh, to, to operate uh, politically and violently against our own culture, our own set of values. Right. We it's understand kind of, the terrorism that absolutely. you're experiencing. We have it ourselves. And there are very worrying uh, uh, connections nowadays between the Israeli strategic advisors and experts uh, and their counterparts in France, Britain, Holland, Denmark. They advise them how to control immigrant societies in order to preempt the next uh, loner, you know, the next, the next uh, lone wolf. Lone, right? lone wolf. And it's uh, what, through biometrics and racial profiling and what do they call it, uh, micro-expressions? Micro-expressions. And it's all built on this assumption. We all have Muslim migrant societies that did not fit in to the host culture. Right. And uh, that, that that's quite a, a challenge for us to it's so false. It's almost like uh, the kind of Nazi propaganda that you have such a big lie. That the, the, the bigger the lie is, the, the more difficult it is than to diffuse it. It's, it's such a big lie that uh, I think we are at the beginning we're a bit paralyzed when we try to challenge it because it's it's so false. And yet I think we have to be patient and unpack it 
again for the audiences and make sure that people understand how ridiculous and dangerous it is for both case studies. We've just heard clips today starting with Intercepted breaking down Trump's latest moves on Israel. Counterspin highlighted what didn't get mentioned in some reporting on a conflict between some Palestinians and Israeli soldiers. Democracy Now! spoke with Norman Finkelstein about some of the many lies perpetuated about Gaza. Intercepted explained how Israel exports their expertise in militarized policing. The Majority Report discussed Richard Spencer's take on the parallel he sees between Israel and white nationalism. And finally, we just heard The Real News Network speaking with Ian Pape about his list of myths about Israel. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And I'm going to hold off on voicemails today. I have more than usual to say. Uh, first of all, though... I do want to mention, I have been getting fewer voicemails than usual, and it's sort of been happening for a while. This happened once before, and I had a, I had a theory. It was a very technical one, though. I, I had started suggesting that people leave messages by recording it on their phone and then emailing it to me, and that created this really interesting psychological barrier for people that they they sort of wanted to do it that way, but then that process sort of prevented them and the number of calls I, I was getting dropped off. And so I posited that theory on the show and a bunch of people responded saying, yeah, actually that is, that's what happened to me. Um, and so we sort of figured it out this time though, that's not the case. So I'm not sure what the cause of the drop off in, in calls is, but my new theory is that it, it is related to the general malaise that we are feeling in the country. Like, I, I think The Onion summed it up well recently, uh, and, you know, as they usually do, with the headline, CDC issues warning of full-blown epidemic of the blahs. And, and I can definitely commiserate with that. So th that's my new theory, at least. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why, but uh, I, I, a, couple, a couple episodes back, we started a conversation in response to the recent Me Too episode. And... Two dudes, both named Jeff, Jeff with a J and Jeff with a G, luckily, so we can tell them apart, um, both responded with differing versions of their concerns. You know, and I said, let's hear from some other people. And literally no one else has reached out or, you know, expressed their opinion. So I'm, I'm chalking it up to the blahs, but anyway, I'll, I'll dive in. I have some answers. Uh, and maybe this will uh, make someone uh, decide to respond, or maybe I'll get it exactly right and everyone can just uh, go on with their day. So let's get into these weeds. Uh, I got these two responses, two dudes named Jeff, and uh, Jeff with a J, he left a voicemail, so you might have heard that, and then he also emailed me later, whereas Jeff with a G only emailed, but I sort of told you briefly about um, what he had said. But to start with Jeff with a G and his email, he wanted to focus a lot on agency, the whole whole idea that like, you know, what about 
making sure to tell victims that they should have done something different, or as I'm sure he would like to phrase it, you know, empowering people to extricate themselves from situations before something goes wrong. And so, you know, he, he said this one line that caught my eye. He said, saying that someone needs to exercise agency is not victim blaming, it's progress. And I thought that was a, a, a nice new way of dressing up a very old idea. So I asked, you know, so if, if you think this is progress, then could you explain what is it about saying that someone needs to exercise agency that's new to this conversation? Because if it's progress, well, then it's probably new. And he admitted that, no, it's not new. But he did say, quote, agency is not enough of the dialogue in this whole conversation about Me Too. And the problem is that agency has been literally the only aspect of this discussion that's ever been had. What were you wearing? Why weren't you watching over your drink more closely? Why did you get separated from your friends? Why were you in that neighborhood? Why do you go to those parties? Why were you drinking at all? Why did you talk to him? Why did you look at him that way? And on and on and on. It's the same shit over and over again going back hundreds of years or more. So no, there is nothing new and there are no signs of progress when you tell people to use their agency. The moment the conversation veers away from what people are most comfortable with, looking to the victim to examine what they should have done differently, a huge percentage of people, even those like Jeff, who are trying to be supportive of the Me Too movement, reflexively try to steer the conversation back in that direction. So let me explain this as best as I can. The reason we are trying to steer the conversation away from always reflexively focusing on the agency of the victims is to expand our understanding of the dynamics at play here, dynamics of power and privilege that steer people to be less empathetic and more likely to be abusive, sometimes without even realizing it, dynamics of gendered socialization that often steer women, more likely, to be more submissive and eager to please rather than assertive. In other words, dynamics that play directly into the conversation about agency. You know, always pointing at victims and focusing on what they should have done differently with their agency without understanding these important dynamics at play is not terribly different from looking at, for instance, the racial wealth gap in America and only focusing on what people of color should have done differently to make more money while ignoring all of the institutional ways that they have been systematically robbed of their wealth generation after generation. And to be clear, it's not even that the concept of agency is wrong or misplaced in the discussion of harassment and abuse. It's that it's fucking old and worn out, and it is clearly not getting the job done by itself. We obviously need some new ideas in here to tackle this problem we have, so let's move that aside so we can expand this conversation and break some new ground. Secondly, uh, now uh, Jeff with a J... He called in first and then he emailed, and uh, the main point that he brings up, what he and Jeff with a G have in common, is that they are both stressing that we need to separate low-level harassment from high-level abuse and assault. And sort of like with the agency bit, 
Uh, this sounded very old-fashioned to me. Uh, you know, another sort of desperate attempt to bring the conversation back to where it's more comfortable. You know, the old way of looking at things is that rape is bad and harassment is just fun and game. So, you know, calm down and stop being a buzzkill about it. That's the old way. The new way is to make it crystal fucking clear that all of this shit exists on the same spectrum. I also want to point out that Jeff with a G in his emails made the straw man argument that there are a significant number of people out there who see all transgressions, everything from unwelcome flirting to rape, as being exactly the same. He said, literally, quote, I don't take it lightly, but when microaggressions become the same thing in people's eyes as sexual assault or rape, I think that does damage not only to the innocent people accused, but also to the victims of actual assault slash rape, end quote. And here's the thing. That is a made-up problem that doesn't really exist, and there is not any significant number of people out there who think that microaggressions are the same as rape. It may literally be zero. I asked him to, you know, send me some examples of people saying that, and of course he didn't. So what both Jeffs are afraid of, in their different ways, you know, Jeff with a J was far less panicky sounding about it, is that we need to separate different offenses based on degrees. And my argument is that they're seeing a problem where no problem really exists, because all adults of sound mind and body already understand the concept of degrees and have the ability to react accordingly. But the more important aspect is, as I said, to get people to begin to realize that the types of things they used to think of as fun and games are actually on the same spectrum as harassment, abuse, assault, and rape. Each action to be judged separately and assessed to its appropriate degree of offense but on the same spectrum nonetheless. So if anything, we need to bring these types of offenses closer together so we can realize that they are actually more similar than we used to think, how they all branch from the same poison roots, and address them collectively and holistically. But again, not losing sight that different offenses are different, but that's something that no one has a problem with. Only people who reflexively panic that we're going to go too far and that they imagine people to not be able to see the difference. So now, Jeff with a J, who called in and emailed, he's less panicky, he was making some of the same points, but in a slightly better, more nuanced way. His comments focused on how we need to not only recognize the degrees of various offenses, but we also need to respond accordingly to those offenses in different ways. He said by email, quote, A sit-down dialogue can be applied to some guys who make unknowing sexist statements and remarks versus putting them in the same category as those who have predatory behaviors, unquote. And I see no reason to disagree with that concept. In short, understand different degrees of offense and respond with an appropriate degree of outrage or gentle correcting or firing or whatever. Just like there's murder in the first degree, second degree, etc., and all of those cases are handled differently, we all get it. It's pretty simple. Degrees. Um, but back to Jeff with a G's email, he tried to emphasize that he wants to support abuse victims, but his primary reason for writing was to refocus on what he imagines to be an epidemic of falsely accused perpetrators who are 
this generation's version of those blacklisted during the McCarthy era. And that is not an exaggeration. He literally calls it sexual McCarthyism. So he says he's in a really difficult position because he wants to support women and also compare them to Joe McCarthy, which, to be fair, is accurate. That is a difficult position to be in. But in the end, I think that he and Jeff with a J are saying similar things, like they have a similar concern, but they're coming to very different conclusions. Whereas Jeff with a J is focusing on treating different accusations with the degrees of nuance they deserve, Jeff with a G said this, quote, I'm in a tough position because I do think that women should speak up when they are assaulted or they are raped. And I think that those who commit those crimes deserve harsh punishment. I think women need to be able to speak up about catcalling and harassment. I want all of that. I also know that women can be flawed just like men and are susceptible to revenge or bitterness or jealousy, but that is not part of the conversation, not part of the dialogue, unquote. In short, let's not make the mistake of believing women too much. Or to be fair, he would probably argue, let's not believe men too much either. So as much as I find that position to be a nauseating throwback to the old way of doing things that has been serving us so poorly through the years, the exact kind of thinking that the Me Too movement is trying to throw off of us, I can still see he's coming at this from a good place. You know, he's trying to figure out a way to have more people feel like they have justice, which is admirable. And I think that he's only framing it in this old don't believe victims solution because he can't think of anything else. So here's how I think these paradigms play out. The old paradigm we're working to overthrow is believe victims less. And there are dozens of reasons why people hate believing victims, and they all add up to hundreds of years of repression that have thankfully resulted in an explosive backlash in the form of the Me Too movement. The new paradigm we're trying to build is believe victims, or in other words, to not reflexively disbelieve victims. But this sends people like Jeff with a G, uh, and there are a lot of people like him, into a panic, worrying about the soon-to-be unwashed masses of the falsely accused who've been blacklisted from all of society because we made the mistake of believing a rampaging pack of McCarthyite women too much. So I think we're in a moment of tectonic change, and it's unclear where we're going to be when the dust settles again. The one thing that should be clear is that we can't go backward and continue disbelieving victims. That's just not morally, ethically, or culturally right, or maybe even possible. But there there might still be a way to tip the scales further toward justice, and that is to understand offenders more. Which doesn't get talked about, and so it might initially sound wrong, uh, but really there is no shortcut past understanding the gender and power dynamics at play. There is no excuse for not seeing and incorporating degrees and nuance into our thinking and our responses. So in short, don't believe victims less, understand offenders more, and meanwhile offenders will come to understand these dynamics themselves. So it's it's not about giving a pass for poor behavior, 
but to make the reaction commiserate with the offense on a case-by-case basis and for people to feel like they are getting justice, which very often, to be honest, what you what you often hear from victims is that what they want more than punishment is understanding from the offender. They just want the person to understand what they did, understand that it was wrong, and make a change. And that's not always going to be the case, but it's a really good place to start or it's a good place to aim for, I think. So let me know your thoughts. Did I thread that needle perfectly or completely miss the point or maybe some degree between the two? As always, give a call 202-999-3991 to give your thoughts. Uh, And before I go, don't forget, if you're not using the right credit cards, you could be missing out on $300 a year in rewards. That's why there's Birch, the app that helps you get the most out of your cards by actively tracking your rewards programs and showing you which ones to use before you buy. Download Birch, B-I-R-C-H, in the App Store and sign up for free today. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. So that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Best of the Left left.com. Mm-hmm.